Welcome to the Victoria Anarchist Book Fair's week of podcasts featuring local, national, and international activists and authors. Due to the ongoing global pandemic, the Book Fair Collective decided to move their event online again this year. So for the second year in a row, From Embers is teaming up with the Victoria Anarchist Book Fair to release presentations over our podcast platform. Recordings of these Voices of Resistance were conducted on unceded Indigenous territories across so-called British Columbia and beyond. For more information about the book fair and a full schedule of online events, check out victoriaanarchistbookfair.ca. And listeners in the Victoria area are encouraged to visit Camus Books at 2620 Quadra Street or online at camus.ca for anarchist publications and more. And to find out more about our regular anarchist podcast, go to fromembers.libsyn.com or simply search From Embers in your favorite podcast app. The Victoria Anarchist Book Fair Collective would like to acknowledge the interview you're about to hear took, simulta- took place simultaneously on unceded Wasak and Lekwungen territories in so-called Victoria, Canada, and on the territories of the sovereign Hawaiian nation. My name is Alan Atliff. Today I'm interviewing Hawaiian activist and land defender Kahala Johnson. Kahala. Some listeners may not be familiar with the historical colonization of the Hawaiian Islands. Could you give us a brief summary of that process? Yes, um, it's actually quite a tale. Um, So beginning in around the late 1700s, um, one of our uh, chiefs, his name is Kamehameha I, um, engaged in a war to conquer uh, the main islands, Hawaii, Oahu, Maui, Moka'i, and Lanai. Um, and following this, his one of his um, wives, uh, Ka'ahumanu, um, con- later incorporated Kwa'i and Ihao uh, through a, um, an arranged relation with uh, those islands chiefs. Um, after this kind of initial, uh, what people say, unification or conquering of the islands, um, it was followed by a period of Hawaiian statecraft, um, which was occurred from 1810 to about 1893. Um, and this, this um, statecraft eventually led to the recognition of uh, what we call the Hawaiian Kingdom as a sovereign and independent nation state. Um, and that was done largely under um, Kamehameha and Kahumanu's um, uh, child or successor, uh, King Kawikioli, who's known as Kamehameha III. Um, the recognition of the Hawaiian Kingdom as a sovereign nation state was achieved through a couple of real key geopolitical events. Um, first was the creation of an 1839 Declaration of Rights and an 1840 constitution, which provided the legal parameters that defined the territorial boundaries, uh, the population and its citizenship, citizenship requirements, um, as well as a form of government that was to be established within Hawaii, uh, which was gonna be a constitutional monarchy. Um, second, it was the defense and uh, control of that territorial population and government uh, through the exclusion of competing sovereigns. Um, so during this period, uh, Europe and America were um, ex- exploring the Pacific. Um, but in 1839, um, this bourgeoisie or nascent kingdom um, was able to push out the French in 1839 and later the British in 1843. 
Um, and among, among other um, attempted evasions and seizures, the um, Hawaiian Kanakamali uh, leadership was successful at um, excluding those competing sovereigns. Um, third, there was a hybridization um, of private property laws, um, which were put, um, hybridized with native land tenure during an event called the Mahelen Nui. Um, so a lot of people say that this is kind of like the entrance of private property regimes into um, Hawaii, um, where before there hadn't, we didn't own any, any of the land. Uh, there was no such thing as property. That's something that's foreign. Um, and so some people thought that this was kind of an incursion. Um, but there are other scholars um, who study this as not just the, the um, uncritical adoption of private property, but it actually had a hybridization with uh, pre-existing uh, native traditions of land tenure, which were again, were not based on property. Um, and so the Mahele Nui in this event, um, which saw the apportioning, dividing and sharing of the land um, was grounded both in harm practices of what we call kalai aina, carving the, carving the land, uh, but it also resembled um, in a legal sense, the a kind of a foreign quiet title procedure, uh, which occurred between the crown, the chiefs, and the commoners. Um, very important, very important uh, geopolitical development. Um, fourth was the recognition of the Hawaiian Kingdom by other sovereign states and its participation in diplomacy, which began with the 1843 Anglo-Franco pro proclamation, um, and which was followed by a series of bilateral treaties with countries um, in Europe, America, Asia, and Oceania. Um, and lastly, in these, these, these kind of uh, geopolitical developments, um, it's an unofficial requirement, but it was part of the missionary process um, of uh, Christian missionaries and churches in the islands, um, which brought this civilizing uh, agenda. And so one of the um, other geopolitical um, events was the entrance of uh, Christianity as a structuring uh, theology. Um, and its influence was felt on the kingdom. And so you could see like, you know, uh, kind of a patriarchal and capitalist domestication um, of the kingdom to make it align with, um, yes, with Western patriarchal forms of property ownership with this patriarchal state um, and, and particularly with the white Protestant nuclear family. And so once the leadership of the kingdom um, had met all these geopolitical standards for sovereignty, uh, the Hawaiian Kingdom would uh, eventually enter into the family of nations. Um, and after that, they even attempted to create an oceanic confederation with Samoa and other um, Polynesian countries um, during the reign of Kalakaua. And that was done as a way to resist Euro-American imperialism in the Pacific. Um, however, <laughs> despite all these um, attempts to secure uh, sovereignty and recognition of an independent country, the Hawaiian Kingdom would eventually experience an American military-backed coup d'etat in 1893, um, which would have severe political consequences even up to the present day. So in 1893, a small group of white missionary descendants called the Committee of Safety, led by Lauren Thurston and Sanford B. Dole, conspired with the U.S. Foreign Minister John, John L. Stevens to betray the Hawaiian government. And they enlisted the support of the American military to stage a coup d'etat against the reigning monarch at the time, Queen Lili Wokalani. This Committee of Safety um, sought to annex Hawaii to the United States, and they were motivated by business interests in the sugar industry. Um, Queen Lili Wokalani, on her part, in order to prevent bloodshed during this revolt, this rebellion, 
she yielded the authority of her executive office to the United States president at the time, Grover Cleveland, who she trusted would declare the overthrow an insurgency and return her to power. Um, for Cleveland's part, uh, amazingly, <laughs> uh, the U.S. president at this time did recognize the coup d'etat as an act of war, and he began an investigation into um, the events leading up to the overthrow. Um, and eventually, he even issued a couple of executive orders to restore the Queen's authority to her. Um, while this was going on between Grover Cleveland and the Queen, um, there were insurgents from the Committee of Safety who attempted to annex the kingdom to the U.S., but they were stopped by President Cleveland, um, Congress, the American Congress at the time, and the actions of a domestic group called the Hui Aloha Aina, who were anti-annexationists, um, who went around the islands collecting like thousands of signatures on this petition, um, you know, demanding that uh, the Queen be restored and or uh, that annexation um, not occur. And so these, these um, defiant acts uh, succeeded at first um, and halted the efforts of the Committee of Safety and um, insurgents um, at annexing the, the Hawaii to the, to the United States. Um, so while their efforts had initially failed, these insurgents declared, nonetheless, they declared their own provisional government um, and then a Republic of Hawaii. Um, and they, sold, they seized control of govern, government affairs and they continued to press for annexation despite all this resistance from Hawaiians and um, the citizens of the Hawaiian kingdom, who also included non-Hawaiians as well. Um, there was even an armed counterinsurgency that one of my ancestors was um, uh, involved in, which was the Robert Wilcox uh, counterinsurgent result revolution in 1895. It didn't pan out, um, they were discovered, but you, it's part of the history of us not accepting um, annexation to the United States. Um, unfortunately, uh, the pro-annexationists and the insurgents did gain the advantage um, after Grover Cleveland uh, left office and William McKinley um, was elected to the presidency in 1897. Um, for those who don't know, um, McKinley was a staunch uh, American imperialist and he was, responsible for, he was responsible for overseeing the Spanish-American War, which began in Cuba um, in 1898 and eventually led to the acquisition of Guam. Uh, Puerto Rico and the Philippines as US colonies. Uh, during the Spanish-American War, McKinley used that conflict as a rationale for occupying the Hawaiian Islands um, and later supported the illegal annexation of Hawaii by a joint resolution in 1898. And that joint resolution was um, a domestic measure on the part of the United States. It had no um, um, equal treaty from the Hawaiian Kingdom. And so this joint resolution is seen as a point of contestation um, that that attempts to dispel this myth of, the, of Hawaii being annexed to the United States. Um, but in any case, from 1898 to 1959, um, Hawaii was treated as a territory of the United States, um, but was listed on the United Nations Registry of Non-Self-Governing Territories in 1946. Um, however, Hawaii was removed from the list in 1959, uh, mysteriously, but not so mysteriously, um, due to the passage of the Admissions Act, which ostensibly made us the 50th state of the union. And so that's another uh, point of contestation by uh, folks who are, who are uh, looking at the you know, UN, UN um, protocols for decolonization. They see this as the United States wanting to maintain hold of Hawaii and therefore um, using statehood as a way to bypass um, decolonization protocols. Um, 
During this period, there was a concentrated effort to Americanize Tanaka Mali uh, through deracination. I think Holani Kauanui talked about this um, in her book, Bug Quantum, um, and so forth. Um, and there was also this effort to denationalize Hawaiians. Um, Kiyomisai, Dr. Kiyomisai uh, talks about this um, in his more recent articles um, discussing the uh, the stripping away of the national consciousness of Hawaiians as belonging to a Hawaiian kingdom. Um, and instead the kind of assimilation of Hawaiian consciousness as, you know, we're part of America, um, we're the 50th state, et cetera. Um, also during this period, um, 1959 and onward, uh, or actually even before that, um, the Hawaiian language was institutionally suppressed. Uh, it was seen as undesirable, uh, which prevented us from accessing the hundreds of newspapers, which have the history of Hawaiian kingdom statecraft, uh, as well as the resistance to Euro-American domination. Um, Hawaiian lands and waters were also settled during this period, first by plantation economy, and then by military tourism complex, which ended up justifying U.S. imperial expansion into the Pacific during the Cold War and post-Cold War period. Um, culturally, we experienced what a lot of other Black and Indigenous people of color faced, racist blood quantum laws, assimilation of education systems, Indian reservation-style homesteading, um, and the stigmatization, queering of our kinship, etc. Uh, but even through all of this, um, our ancestors still resisted and even innovated, not just those who were on island, but also those who were off island in the diaspora. Um, and it's this resistance that would eventually produce movements in Hawaii to stop the bombing of Koholawe, you know, with George Helm, um, to create housing sanctuaries in Makua and Kalama Valley for um, Hawaiians and other people of color being uh, evicted um, by large scale um, corporate housing development. Um, it was also led to the fight for Hawaiian sovereignty and self-determination that we know through um, Hanani Kitras, one of our preeminent um, parents of the uh, Hawaiian sovereignty movement, um, also scholar, um, educated in the diaspora. Um, and it all eventually led to the um, types of uh, movements we saw to protect um, mountains like Haleakala and Mauna Kea in 2015 onward. Um, okay. So that's like the big tale. <laughs> right now, currently, um, Hawaiian politics are, um, is in a very, it's a very agonistic um, situation with regard to like this history of statecraft. Um, and this is where kind of like anarchist um, um, analyses and, and um, you know, ways of, of, of looking at the situation are really important. So there are some Hawaiians, some Kanaka Maoli who prefer the assimilationist realm uh, to various degrees. Um, they've accepted that more or less statehood occurred. Um, some of the examples of that, of, of that kind of effort is the attempts to achieve federal and state recognition of Kanaka Maoli um, as an indigenous people or tribe of the United States. I'm not with that crowd um, <laughs> for many, many reasons that's beyond the scope of this, but um, there are others in you know in Hawaiian politics, the political situation who are emphasizing decolonization. And they a lot of them turn back to that um UN definition um and the process and protocol of decolonization with the list and Hawaii being taken off that list and whatnot. Um, but decolonization also includes um uh, engagements with like white and Asian settler colonialism in Hawaii, uh, particularly with the ways that white white and Asian settler structures um serve to eliminate Hawaiians from our own lands. Um, still others um, take a kind of a strict, what we call a deoccupation de framework, um, which follows UN international humanitarian laws and protocols of, of occupation and deoccupation, 
Um, deoccupation advocates, they often reject both the assimilation, we're part of the United States um, kind of route, as well as the decolonization approaches in many, many if not all of those forms. Um, and the way they do that is that they argue that the Hawaiian Kingdom was never an American state, and it was also not an American colony, and therefore it continues to remain a sovereign country, although, albeit occupied by the United States in the present. Um, you also have, like, beyond these kind of three main classifications, you also have folks engaged in um, research and direct action and organizing on the ground, uh, movements that include, um, you know, addressing houselessness, uh, the protection of um, ancestral burials and artifacts. I don't like that word. It's just, you know, that they're all our ancestors. <laughs> um, you have folks who are reoccupying the land, um, folks who are involved in language revitalization, uh, demilitarization movements, food sovereignty, financial sovereignty, um, prison and police abolition, labor unions, feminist LGBTQ issues, uh, environmental healing, spiritual ritual recovery, and even transnational solidarity between Palestine, Melanesia, Micronesia, Black and Native Americans. Um, so it's it's a lot. Um, and that's kind of the, the tale that I want to <laughs> share today to answer that question. So you identify as an anarchist. Can you tell us how your own indigeneity has shaped your conception of anarchism? What's the relationship between your indigeneity and the anarchism, conception of anarchism that you've developed? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so it's a complex relationship for me. So indigeneity shapes my concept of anarchism in both positive and negative ways. Um, I'll explain what that means. Um, from a positive perspective, I tend to draw on um, the indigeneity of my ancestors um, that I descend from. So one of those ancestors um, is named Pele Honuamea um, Pele, who is associated with the volcano um, on Hawaii Island, as well as the mountain um, Haleakala on Maui, where I'm from. Um, the Pele family or the Pele clan is known for a couple of practices, um, which have been real central to my ideas and understanding of anarcha indigenism. Um, one of those one of those practices is this concept of hulihia. Um, hulihia, huli means to turn. Hia is kind of a, a passive a pacification uh, prefix, which uh, renders the word as overturned. Um, and this idea of overturn is related to uh, volcanic and tectonic activities of the earth. Um, Pele as a, um, a deity associated with fire, the volcano, as well as you know earthquakes, all these kinds of geological processes um, provides this idea of Hulihia as this overturning. Um, so whenever whenever there's an eruption or an earthquake that occurs um, and the land is thrown into upheaval, that's what we call Hulihia. That's what we would say Hulihia Keo. Yeah, the, the the period of time that we're in is in upheaval. Um, Hulihia is also um, a way of describing the geodynamic revolutions um, of you know convection and subduction that occur in the Earth's mantle. So whenever um, you know the plates uh, subduct beneath the Earth and turn, that turning is is what we would call hulihia. Um, but as well, in addition to that, is the upwelling of um, molten material um, from from the middle, of the core of the Earth upwards. Um, that also is is known as a hulihia. And so these two kind of turning um admixture of the elements of the earth um, beneath us is also part of that um, process 
Um, we oftentimes look at the volcanic one and it's exciting, you know, uh, big events. Um, but Julia is not just those, you know, periodic eruptions. It's also um, the turning within the earth that produces uh, islands, um, continents, geez, um, even our, you know, magnetic field <laughs> uh, holding the atmosphere together. Um, yeah, so Julia as a kind of this, this geodynamic um, concept associated with, with my clan, um, it's also used uh, for situations of political revolution or uprising. Um, ironically, <laughs> um, in the Hawaiian language newspapers, Hulihia is also one of the words that are used to describe the 1893 overthrow by the Committee of Safety, as well as the 1898 um, illegal annexation. Um, um, but, but those references are really more uh, regarding the disastrous consequences of that for Hawaiians. Um, Hulihia has also been used to describe the current pandemic as well as the unknown potential of better or worse worlds to come. Um, Hulihia is one of those concepts where, you know, we just don't know. We only know that there's creativity, um, there's uh, novelty, there's transformation, change, often violent, um, but not just violent. There's also this life-giving aspect to it. Um, but it's a mixture of all that. Um, and really, during the period of Hulihia, uh, we, we don't really ascribe good, bad, uh, balanced, imbalanced. It just is a phenomenon that you get through. Um, and it oftentimes is disastrous to um, those who experience it. But from the perspective of Kanaka, that's the land, um, particularly Pele and other uh, earth deities um, being and doing what they do. Um, and so it's a recognition of kind of the place of Kanaka Mali in relation to the land, in relation to our ancestors and in relation to you know, it, it gives us this idea that really challenges sovereignty. Yeah, these ideas of like the state owning the property, owning people and controlling them and all that. Because, um, you know, when, <laughs> when that eruption comes up, um, there's not much you can do. And it, it's a it's a very important um, aspect for Hawaiian culture to realize that connection to land and also that 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 deference to, um, to the land and our ancestors. Um, so... In addition to kind of like conceiving of revolution as like this event and this ongoing process uh, regarding Hulia, um, Hulia really allows me personally to look at and pay attention to um, the marks or the memories, I would say, left by Hawaiian political activity in the past um, that are left upon the strata of Hawaiian history that we're uncovering today as, as uh, descendants of these colonial um, occupying um, interruptions into our, our, our lifestyles or our lives um and it's it particularly for me is it, it's important for how those marks of political activity um provide for like a genealogical um look not at like this static or like uh conformist um history but rather this history of dynamic movement action transformation creativity and especially defiance um and so you know, for these reasons, Hulihia to me is uh, is a Hawaiian philosophy with a strong affinity for anarchist practice, um, especially concerning resistance and defiance to the patriarchal state and capitalist property ownership. So, as an example, for um, when Pele erupted on Hawaii Island in 2018, she caused the Hulihia. Um, interestingly, uh, in that you know when that was happening, my you know from from my perspective, from from the clan's perspective. The ancestor doesn't care whether the land is 
owned by the United States, whether it's owned by the Hawaiian kingdom, the land is her, right? Like that's her. And she's reclaiming um, herself. <laughs> um, and really it even just goes beyond this idea of owning and possessing and whatnot um, because she's, she's really just giving birth to herself <laughs> again and again and again. Um, but in doing so, in, in simply you know, giving birth to herself, she's challenging the laws of the United States and the Hawaiian kingdom. Um, and I think there's something there that, you know, um, allows us to, to think of Hulihia as this practice, which says, you know, the United States, the Hawaiian kingdom state, the nation states, property ownership under capitalist regimes, you know, the control of, you know, women's bodies, all of that, like, you know, we we sometimes feel like we have to, I think that's why we have to negotiate a lot of those terms. But then we have our ancestor today who, you know, is just giving birth to herself. And in doing so, she completely overturns um, who he is, all of those, those structures. Um, and it causes a wonderful disaster, in my opinion, for, uh, uh, to the state, to the ideas of property ownership. Um, um, that also gives you know it, it gives me um, another um, another concept that we have in in the Pele clan. So Pele is known as uh, a deity who um, we use the word noho. Noho means to like live, habituate, or dwell. Uh, but it can also be used um, for like possession in the spiritual sense. Now this is really interesting because the word possession is you know wrapped up with ideas of property and whatnot. Um, but when in these kinds of Hulihia events, um, when an eruption is about to take place, the land around the eruption starts to get hot. It starts to, um, you know, burn, and that burning from Hawaiian from from the Pele clan is seen as noho, um, which is translated as spiritual possession. But in fact, for us, it's it's the idea that our our ancestor, our deity. Um, the leader of our clan is occupying, residing in, or habituating in herself. Um, and she does this to the land. She also does this to her descendants. And so it's an interesting, and it's difficult for me to talk about this in English, but it's this, this idea of noho and hulihia includes this idea that Pele can kind of, I'll just use that word, possess the land and her descendants' bodies because she doesn't see them as not her. All of that is her. And so um, it gives this really productive frustration of the idea of who owns what, <laughs> um, who belongs to what, who possesses what. And it kind of, th again, it throws everything up into Hulihia. Um, and so, you know, for me, as this is where my indigeneity in a positive way um, helps me to um, think of ways of future ways, present ways to prefigure, um, to use an anarchist term, another anarchist term, to prefigure ways of, of living and being and relating that don't have to rely on these ideas of, of you know, property or of the state. And it really it kind of stresses the need to actually have to think and practice and dance and behave creatively, even aesthetically. 
um, in order to find that, that to follow our desire and to find those ways of, of being that, you know, we don't have to own um, any entities, right? Like it's, it's, it's about relating and caring for um, and being accountable and responsible um, where we don't have to look to this, you know, the state that, you know, pretends to own and, and control everything. And yet, you know, the earth erupts and it's like, well, yeah, that was a myth. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's kind of the positive aspects of how um, I incorporate some of my, uh, some, of, some of the indigenous philosophy specific to the Pele family and the Pele clan into my anarchism. Um, in terms of a negative, though, um, there are negative things. Like one of my friends, Gregory Pomai Kutni Gushkin, they, you know, they say, just because it's an indigenous, just just because a concept, philosophy, or practice is indigenous, doesn't make it innocent, yeah? Um, and that's very true when indigeneity, um, as it has been theorized, as it has been um, practiced, begins to converge with very problematic uh, settler structures of colonization. One of them being um, something that I'm seeing right now is this convergence with um, anti-Blackness, uh, white supremacy, and fascism even. Um, you know, during during the Trump administration and uh, even to now, um, we've been seeing this, the assimilation, co-optation, um, of Hawaiian indigenous resistance to colonization, to the occupier, uh, to, you know, to the United States um, power. Um, we're seeing this kind of bizarre uh, <laughs> move and proximity toward whiteness um, where you have Hawaiians standing up for blue, li blue lives and um, standing against um, Micronesians, like I remember Saikap who was murdered um, this year, or Lindani Mieni, uh, um, Af South African um, royalty actually, who was murdered as well, almost around the same time, like the same, like one week between these deaths. Um, and so when that happened, you saw Hawaiians like standing up for the police and their actions of killing um, people of color um, and children of color, actually. Um, um, I remember I was, was a minor. Um, and so you're seeing these kinds of uh, convergences there. You're also seeing uh, strong republicanism, strong conservative, conservative um, elements, um, you know, uh, and all the contradictions that come with that. You have Hawaiians who are, you know, right now saying, you know, we want to have the choice to be vaccinated or not, um, while at the same time, you know, going against um, women's reproductive health. Uh, and of course, the, the church, uh, Christianity really facilitates that, you know, uh, contradiction and paradox. Um, but you're also seeing it elsewhere. For example, you're seeing deoccupation, folks who argue for the deoccupation of the Hawaiian kingdom, um, and they're, you know, the ousting of, Amer of the American occupier. Um, weirdly allying with um, <laughs> Americans who do not have their interests, not even their best interests, just any interest <laughs> in mind. Um, and so, in a, in a way, you know, when indigeneity starts to become proximate to, um, you know, hyper-masculinity, patriarchy, white supremacy, anti-Blackness, um, that's where I, I have this troubling relationship. Um, and, you know, there is an explanation. It's not just because, you know, indigeneity is like that, but rather because um, you see the, again, it goes back to the state crafting, right? <laughs> uh, the state as a white patriarchal uh, structure of colonization and imperialism um, was 
incorporated, you know, sometimes agentively by our own leadership from during the Hawaiian Kingdom period. Um, in fact, the adoption of um, monarchical, monarchical structures, um, the tripartite division of um, of the government, etc. These are all, you know, there were there were resistances, there was Hawaiian aspects to it, but there was also a growing proximity to Europe and America. And I understand why that happened. It was statecrafting was done so that you know another power wouldn't come in and completely, you know, wipe us out or or you know have a quick way of doing that. Still, you know, overthrow, you know, it happened, the events occurred, and we're currently in uh, the political situation that we're in now. Um, but I think that, you know, these, this proximity to um, your American whiteness um, has had some really damaging effects on how we think of indigeneity. Um, and for that reason, I actually think these engagements with anarchism are really important. Um, because it allows us to recenter, you know, really these these real real historical critiques of the state, of the market, of capitalism, of patriarchy, and of all the archies, right? And I think right now, where you're getting this binarized, you know, what would have been, I would I would have thought a couple of years ago, um, a strong resistance to uh, anti-blackness and oh, excuse me, yeah, a strong resistance to anti-blackness and white supremacy, um, but now today, kind of a, a a growing incorporation of that or, or a, a resurgence of that. Um, I think right now, anarchism and its, its critiques, it's um, on the ground making relations yeah, with those folks who are impacted by um, anti-Blackness, white supremacy and fascism. That is extremely important. And I think that's where I actually kind of move away from indigeneity for a bit and kind of merge more towards with anarchism because it supplements a very needed uh, perspective, in my opinion, along with like feminism and you know other um, other uh, critical uh, movements. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing the complexities of uh, that question with me and our listeners. Um, and I was reflecting on uh, my own uh, condition as a white descendant of Europeans in Canada and uh, the tremendous work that needs to be done as an anarchist uh, to overthrow uh, many of the, mo the modes of oppressions that you're outlining. Um, and, the, and the weight of that legacy that, uh, that um, bears down on, on my consciousness and, and conception of radicality and strategies also for building alliances outside of a, a, a white context, of course. Uh, towards a shared liberation. So, yeah, thanks so much for that. Yeah. Um, I'd like to turn now to some of the resistance actions on the islands, because, of course, they've been happening. And one of them is opposition to the construction of a massive telescope on a sacred mountain uh, on Hawaii's biggest island. And you've been involved in that struggle. Uh, could you tell us about it? Yeah, so um, the struggle to prevent the desecration of Mauna Kea and all, all our mountains really, but uh, Mauna Kea um, by the proposed 30 year telescope uh, project, it's a, it, it is still a success. Um, that telescope has not been built. And um, that is due to the efforts really of like uh, be beyond the 2015 standoffs, um, you know, it's efforts of um, Kealoha, Peshota, uh, uh, Kuching, uh, folks like Maxine, um, Haole Leo, um, who have really like for decades, like 20, you know, 20 plus years have been um, 
have been standing for the mountain in court um, and in various other uh, uh, institutions of the occupier and the colonizer, uh, resisting that and you know trying to stop it. In 2015, um, um, you see you know more. That's where we come. Um, me and my partner and you know our our relations come in, where um, we helped to uh, create a stand and um, to um, actively resist through uh, you know through direct action. Um, Police, police forces attempting to uh, help transport materials for the Tuscal about to Mumkia. So um, 2015 and 2019, um, that was the periods where um, you see my, my partner and I were uh, more involved. We, previous to that, we had actually been involved in trying to stop um, the Daniel K. Noy Solar Telescope uh, from being constructed on Haleakala. Um, that telescope, unfortunately, was... Um, Built. However, our experience in that action um, helped us to prepare us for uh, the 2019 uh, Mauna Kea um, um, standoffs. Um, my partner and I uh, went up to the mountain. We helped to establish um, what, we, what we call a puhonoa. A puhonoa is literally a raised ground. Um, it's also uh, related to like sanctuary, refuge, spaces of refuge and sanctuary. Um, and so this puhonoa um, was created as a way to uh, protect the protectors while the protectors of the mountain were um, standing for uh, Mauna Kea. And so we, um, we stayed up there for eight months. Um, we helped to found um, a, you know, a university, which was really um, <laughs> in, in, in a direct action period, um, a place of educating um, the masses of people who helped um, build the Puhonoa and stand in, came up to stand in solidarity with, with Hawaiians for our, um, our sacred places. Uh, we also helped to found um, uh, two organizations, the Hale Wahine, which is a house uh, for uh, women-identified folks, cis, trans, uh, non-binary, etc., as well as the Hale Mahu, who um, uh, my my other sis- my other sister um, Kalani Young helped to found, and that was um, a place for queer, trans, um, LGBTQ folks. Uh, Mahu is our word um, for that community, and so we helped to provide spaces up there for. Um, um, to create space to like a, a sanctuary within that sanctuary for those who are oftentimes mar- we're oftentimes marginalized, um, but you know in that camp we found a place um, we we found a, we found uh, places to work with other um, you know Kanaka and activists protectors. Um, you saw this like bourgeoising um, oh, beautiful movement of um, Kanaka and allies providing for Kanaka and allies, and really in that space we 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 did the work of prefiguring what we want. We, we, we were able to, to have um, the Hale Ho'olako, which is a provisioning um, house um, led by Alika um, um, Kinimanaba and uh, really before him, um, Dr. Maria Lohalani Brown, um, who provided, like they, they took in donations and provided for the camp. Um, you also had other, you know, um, Uilani, uh, Auntie Uilani from the kitchen who, you know, she took in food donations and was able to cook and distribute that food in the camp. We had Mauna Medics under um, Dr. Kalama Niheo and uh, Noilani Ahia, my partner's sister, uh, who provided this, like, beautiful multi-purpose healthcare <laughs> and emergency response team um, on there. And there was just so many others um, you know, Kanaka Rangers, Kapua Aloha crew, the ritualists on the on on the road who took care of our spiritual um, and ritual needs. It, it was it was um, the movement of 
our, of our lifetime. And we're grateful to be a part of that. And currently what we're, what's happened is that there are still uh, protectors on the mountain, um, the Nakia'ipa'a, who are continuing to maintain um, a stand and watching the road in case um, TMT or, or the state tries to make any, um, any movements to transport things. Um, but off the island, we also, excuse me, off the mountain, we also have um, folks engaged in um, stopping the, uh, there's an ongoing process about the lease over the mountain. Um, UH Manoa um, purports to be the, you know, the adjudicator of that lease and whatnot. But um, currently that lease is kind of being up in the air. And so um, UH Manoa just released its uh, master plan. Um, <clears throat> regarding how uh, the mountain should be used or treated. Um, and that plan includes TMT. And so um, what what folks like on Oahu, who are close to UH Manoa and are, are present there, folks like Helani Sunorapale um, in Kalahui, Hawaii, have been doing, um, they've been um, pressuring UH um, and telling them, you know, we, do, we, we never consented to the TMT and we still don't consent to the TMT and you just need to end that. <laughs> so that's where we are currently. Um, no, no telescope on the Mauna. We're resisting that uh, lease agreement, that master plan. Um, and then it kind of looks so far like there may, be, may or may not be a standoff. Um, we are also trying to prepare for, you know, the worst case scenario as well. Okay. So you've mentioned a few things, uh, terms that people might not be familiar with. UH is University of Hawaii? Yes, University of Hawaii. And TNT? 30-meter telescope. 30-meter telescope. And uh, this telescope project was first proposed when? I think I actually not, I, I, I'm not really sure. I want to, I have to, I have to check up on yeah, that. that. Not a problem. But um in terms of direct action resistance, that kicked off in 2015? Yes, um, that was probably the um, first instance of um, or large-scale organized um, direct yeah. action. But there but were before, other... Yeah, other before things. that, there was a, like consciousness of ra uh, raising and so forth and a, a program of, of Indigenous Hawaiians protesting against this, de this planned uh, desecration, I'll call it that. Yes, that's correct. Yes, okay. Uh, because it's interesting how um, the educational component and the direct action com component, when they come together, effectively, they're so powerful. Um, and um, my understanding is that although the University of Hawaii was spearheading the construction of this telescope, it in, it's financed, hypothetically. Of course, it hasn't been built. But the financing is coming from various... Um, um, states around the globe. I mean, there's different players involved, including the Canadian state. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so, and, and your actions have led to various um, universities in Canada that, were, that had some sort of affiliation with, you know, future involvement in using the telescope and everything to say, hold off we're calling for, you know, cons consultation with the indigenous peoples of Hawaii, nothing that's going to be done that will violate what they consider to be um, uh, their rights uh, and so forth. Um, so it's, it's been really effective, but I, as far as I could see, it was you folks hitting the ground hard, occupying, 
standing up, refusing to go away. That was the key. Yeah, and and again, um, and thanks, and we we also couldn't have done it without you know these also our allies um, and other Kanaka in the diaspora who are also pushing mm -hmm. those initiatives. Um, so I also want to thank those who who've been with us um, um, because again that that educational piece too um, was yeah it, it helped to propel others um, outside of Hawaii to take up the cause and so mahalo <laughs> yeah, yeah how did how did you negotiate uh, the confrontations with the police that's something that we're we're dealing with in in various it's, in various ways uh, all the time um, it's, yeah. it's an interesting situation so um we okay so those who organized the direct action they did have police liaisons um who um you know, while we're on the front lines, if anyone, uh, if any of the police approached, you know, they did the typical thing like, okay, go to the police liaison and, you know, deal with them. Don't talk to police. Don't, don't try to negotiate or give information. So we had that on the front lines and set up. Um, but in terms of kind of more of the, the larger issue of uh, police and their, you know, where they situ situate are situated between um, the ongoing resistance and the state. Um, the interesting thing with, uh, Hawaii, with Hawaii's police is that first and foremost, uh, the police station, the police entity was actually um, a part of the Hawaiian kingdom. So that's where, <laughs> where you had, you know, they actually traced their genealogy to, you know, the Hawaiian kingdom period. Um, and, it, and because of that, you um, also see this continuation and conscription of Hawaiian, largely Hawaiian men um, into the police. And so you have a body that's, um, lots of men of color, lots of Hawaiian men of color, um, while also having, you know, these, it's still a very, you know, white structured um, organization. And so on the mountain, it was a very difficult, um, very difficult situation, especially when Black Lives Matter became, uh, rose again, uh, again with us, um, almost simultaneously. Um, and so you saw like, ah, this kind of like, Aloha, like a love for our Hawaiian men who are in the police with this kind of non-deal, like a refusal to deal with the fact that it's still a, a white supremacist <laughs> um, institution. And so you, you we, we had this kind of, um, you know, I, I didn't agree with it. I didn't agree with this discourse, but it was kind of this idea of like, you know, Hawaiian police, um, because they're not like the continental United States police, where it's largely white folks, um, you know, we we could intercourse with them and we could, you know, challenge. And you know, there was there was a productive, a tactical use of that. They, when when the Hawaiian police were looking at, you know, a lot of their like teachers, Hawaiian teachers from you know like their immersion classes, their children were, you know, that's the that's their teachers that teach them and. Uh, when they saw their aunties and uncles and you know community members, it caused a lot of them to break down. Some of them quit or, or refused to to stand. The majority, nonetheless, held the line. And so, um, you know, for me, I I didn't like that discourse of of you know it kind of left it kind of left Hawaiian men off the hook who were involved mm -hmm. there, mm -hmm. um, and that became actually a really big problem when Black Lives Matter rose the summer of twenty. Um, 2020 
um, because you actually saw people standing up for the police because um, they felt that Black Lives Matter and abolitionists were attacking Hawaiian men who were involved with the institution. And so again, that proximity piece causes a lot of issues. And so you saw kind of this distancing between Mauna Kea people who are protecting the mountain, but who are also against the abolitionist um, okay. initiatives. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, um... What an interesting situation to be able to appeal to the indigeneity of the people in the police force and have some of them walk away from what they were doing. Um, what was, uh, the, did you assert a language of sovereignty in relation to the mountain? You mentioned it's officially within the parlance of the state leased. <laughs> who leases it and who do they lease it from? Right, right, exactly. Um, and that was a really big, that was a really big message is that, you know, um, it's one that, 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 you know, the state didn't want to take up, mm -hmm. who has actual air or sovereignty to the mountain. And mm -hmm. so that was, that was actually pushed, it was pushed um, along with the, we don't consent. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, those are very effective and, and clarifying, I think, politically and, and uh, on a whole bunch of different levels clarifying tactics for taking taking an oppositional uh, situation or a resistance struggle to the next level in terms of, again, consciousness raising, right? On the ground and also in, in, in the press releases and so forth. So yeah, fantastic. Uh, what other resistance actions have you been involved in? Currently, um on Maui, on the island of Maui, uh, my family and I are involved in a court case uh, regarding our ancestral lands. And so um, my family is currently uh, reoccupying uh, this land that's in contestation uh, between us and um, a afford an affordable housing development, uh, which it's not affordable at all. It's just one of those, you know, uh, money-making ventures. But um, basically, our, our family has been reoccupying that land for, oh, it's been a couple of months already. Um, and we're making our stand based off of a couple of things. Um, we are talking, we are looking at native title um, that was secured during that Mahele period um, in, the, in the Hawaiian Kingdom. Um, my family has documents um, um, providing our, our uh, belonging to that land and our ancestors filing for um, a loading title uh, to those uh, lands. Um, but we're at, in, in addition to that, because I, you know, it, it's still, it's not, this has been kind of an ongoing uh, discussion with me and my family is that, is that I've tried to tell them, you know, um, while property is a thing that we have to deal with because of the occupier and the colonizer, it's also important that we look at ways that we go beyond that and invoke more indigenous models and relations um, that don't go to property ownership. And so one of them is like allowing, for example, converging our movement to reoccupy our lands with houseless um, Hawaiian uh, movements to survive really. Um, and so we've been trying to um, create a site where um, basically all Hawaiians back to our lands and um, is, is our message. And so what that looks like for um, us as a family is we're using our titled lands that we got through the Mihale as a space to provide um, folks who don't have coins and other um, folks, houseless folks who don't have a place to go to um, stay there for, you know, time being, because, you know, the, the, the welfare system is, 
is not a very good in its, at all in its treatment of houseless folks. So um, currently that's what we're doing um, uh, right now. It's, it is, uh, it's a direct action. Um, we've had to confront, you know, same issues like on Mauna Kea police, um, uh, white developers, um, all sorts of things like that. So, uh, and currently I'm in a, in a court case uh, in November, <laughs> um, having to confront um, challenges to our title. So, yeah. Thanks, a reoccupation. Yep. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, so how many people are involved in the occupation? Have you built structures on the land? So we have um, tents, um, we have, uh, I believe, a kitchen. Um, we have um, about, I would say, about um, a couple, maybe like two dozen people who um, part of the extended family who rotate um, shifts on who's on the land so that folks can go to work and all that stuff. In a weird way, the pandemic is a, was kind of a, a useful um, period of time to do this because, you know, work... Um, a lot of the work went online and so a lot of us are having more time to be on the land and whatnot. Um, we've also, um, in addition to that, we've also been planting. <laughs> so oh. it's not just um, housing and it's not just, you know, a direct action against frontline. It's also thinking about the future. So we've planted um, traditional fiber uh, plants, food plants, uh, medicinal plants um, from our traditional, all uh, our medicinal uh, plant nations, I guess you would say. And so um, a lot of my family have also been practicing their uh, making fiber um, arts and fiber cloth, um, cooking, um, chanting, learning, um, learning about, you know, our, our family's ties to that place. And so, again, it, it, a lot and a lot of this, again, comes because of our experience from Mauna Kea and taking what we learned there back to Maui. Hmm. Are there any other Indigenous Hawaiians taking up this, this strategy? Yes, it's actually a really, um, a really growing movement right now. Um, it started with Keomoku Kapu and Uilani Kapu in um, Lahaina on, on the island of Maui, same island. Um, they have engaged again in a 20, 20 year, um, 20 plus year uh, fight against the white developer, corporate developer. They won a case which uh, recognized that, you know, if um, the, the, the title of heirs to, you know, claims made in the Mahele have standing um, an interest in the lands, um, and that you know developers can't can't just come in and um, you know just push them out. And so they we've actually learned from their efforts. They've been reoccupying their land for years, and that has turned into an educational piece um, and a community organizing movement. And so you have people in Lahaina, uh, West Maui, um, as well as one of my friends um, who's up in Haiku um, on the east side of Maui, who's also reoccupying um, their land um, and. Um, dealing with some um, plantation, uh, cor corporate plantation uh, interests um, regarding water rights. So it's actually, and, and recently they've also done what we call a ka'apuni, uh, which is a, a traditional um, <sighs> march around the island um, doing, during this, this kind of this season at the end of the year. Um, and this march, which is happening right now, it's actually happening right now. It's going to um, end today. Um, this march has been uh, an educational piece going around the island to talk to Hawaiian families about reoccupying their land in the various districts um, across Maui. So um, they've, they took with them signs, um, information sheets about the family's lands and titles so that they could present that to the families so that 
you know, it puts everyone on notice, um, <laughs> particularly the, the settler colonizers and occupiers that, you know, we're back, we're, we're coming back for our lands, we're reoccupying. That's very inspiring. <laughs> and thanks so much for sharing that. Of course. Um, I guess I had one more question for you. I, I was reading a, a piece that you co-wrote on anarchism and indigeneity. And one of the things you talked about in that piece was uh, the seeming paradox of the Hawaiian assertion of nationhood. Of, of course, you've related already in, that, uh, in response to my first question, uh, the historical context for this concept of nationhood. Um, which is based on past treaties and also state interstate recognition, you know. Um, could you elaborate on the difference between the concept of a nation as opposed to a state? Sure. And so, you know, how you might negotiate that yeah. mode of, of, um, of uh, sovereignty association and, uh, assertion in relation to your anarchism? Yes, absolutely. Um, this is one of the one of the one, the, the conversations I love having on um, uh, the differences between nations and states, and particularly when it comes to Hawaiian concepts. Um, and so I would say that the states is a lot more restrictive. Um, even even like the state idea of what is sovereign is extremely restrictive, and largely comes from that geopolitical Euro-American um, tradition of controlling people and places, and you know excluding the control. Very patriarchal. Very um, but um, unfortunately, nation too can sometimes, you know, <laughs> we do have histories of nationalism, you know, uh, turning into um, very, very much similar, um, you know, oppressing um, um, uh, movements. However, from a Hawaiian perspective and the perspective that I bring to my concepts of nationhood is the idea of lahui. And so lahui is a very um, open term. So it means it's, it gets translated or interpreted as nation, um, but it actually can also include non-human or more than human elements. Um, and so we talk of like plant lahui, um, animal lahui. Um, and so we see like nationhood, nationality as extending beyond our Kanaka experience to also include the land, to include other um, more than human ancestors on that land. And so um, for us, or for me, how I see it is that when we talk about international, interna international relations in kind of the the Western or, or colonizing um, perspective. Um, that's like between, it really should be called interstate relations. Yeah. Um, but for, for me, when I think of internationality, it actually happens when it's like Kanaka, Hawaiians, um, humans even, with other species, with other um, deities even, um, that's actually where the international comes from. And so um, it, it's, it's broader, it's more inclusive, and it also challenges the idea of sovereignty because for us, the Hawaiian word for sovereignty is ea. Ea means to rise up, and it's actually another pele kind of um, concept. It's not just rising up in terms of revolution, it's actually also rising up with the land from the ocean through vol volcanic activity. And so um, ea is also related to breath, it's air, oxygen. And so um, when you look at these kinds of things, um, our concepts of sovereignty are not about like a, you know, a state entity dominating over the land and people. It actually has to do with land um, and not as a dominating relationship, but in a relationship of reciprocity. Um, and that relationship is practiced 
all the time through Ea, our, our word for sovereignty, Ea, which is breath, to breathe. And I tell this to my students all the time. I'm like, you know, if you took, if Ea as sovereignty was like the colonizer sovereignty, which means I'm independent, I don't need anybody else, I'm sovereign, I control all the things. If you did that, that's kind of like holding your breath, saying that if I hold my breath, I am sufficient unto myself. But you know, when you do that, you're going to strangle and choke and die. And so in reality, Hawaiian concepts of sovereignty and nationhood and relationship to land are actually more about interdependence, not about uh, um, independence. Um, They're about reciprocal relations with other humans, other um, beings, as well as species, non-humans and whatnot. And so this idea, when we take that idea of Lahui and nation, we have a much more expansive um, set of kinships, which really challenge the idea of the state. Um, and I think that's where, for me, um, I resist, um, you know, the statism of even, even like with the Hawaiian kingdom um, and the, of course the United States. And I want, I guess for me, it's, I want something more. And for me, nationality and nation has a bit more uh, life, a little bit more, uh, configurative potential um, to create a different set of relations that don't have to look at the state and capitalism, uh, but which of course have to deal with them, but is not restricted to them. Um, so that what I would say is my um, ideas of nationality. Nationality, lahuiness comes from the land. It comes from our need to breathe, which is always um, tied to um, other beings, um, to the atmosphere, etc. And we can never be independent because of that. And that's not a bad thing, right? That's actually, it's an opening for relationships. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of productive things for um, anarchists to think about that um, and to reconsider, you know, the critique of the nation and critique of the state. Absolutely. And I reflect on uh, the deep ecological um, um, trends in, in the European tradition of anarchism. Yes, um, and and this, the ecological orientation expands beyond the European context when you look at anarchisms as they've emerged or developed in other places in the world. So, thanks so much for this fantastic discussion. Inviting me all the way. Yes, and uh, let's keep in touch. Yes, take care. Be safe. Yola. Bombs is serving free meals to everyone Sundays 4 p.m. at Centennial Square on unceded Lekwungen territory. Come eat with us, drop off food, or support our kitchen. We are looking for volunteers to help chopping, cooking, and serving food or to help with computer tasks. Check Food Not Bombs Victoria on Facebook to find out where we cook. For inquiries about volunteering and to join our listserv, please mail to vicfnb at lists.resist.ca or check out our Facebook page, Food Not Bombs Victoria. Food Not Bombs, free meals every Sunday at 4 p.m. 
at Centennial Square on unceded Lekwungen territory. Free the food!